chapter 92 of A History of England. I'm David Beeson and this week we're looking at the grandest victory of the British Army and wondering just how British it truly was. The way we left things last time, an army headed by the Duke of Wellington and another by the Prussian Field Marshal Blücher were in Belgium. As Wellington had suspected, Napoleon, having restored himself as Emperor of France, moved against them as soon as he had his army together and ready for action. Now we come to another of those iconic moments of British history, the stuff of novels such as Thackeray's Vanity Fair and many a film. Brits had travelled to Brussels where Wellington was based. One, the Duke of Richmond, was in command of a reserve unit tasked with defending the city if it came under attack. His wife decided to hold the ball on the night of the 15th of June, 1815. The Duchess of Richmond's ball must be one of the most famous in history. Wellington and his staff showed up sometime after 11 o'clock at night. There was dancing, including a display of Scottish reels by Cameron Highlanders. Everyone was having a ball, you might say. Supper was served at 1am. Such were the customs in the stratospheric reaches of society. Just before they sat down, a message turned up to say that the Prussians had been forced by French forces to retreat from the town of Fleurus. And a while later, a second message arrived to say that the French were now on the Brussels Road, heading for a crossroads known as Quatre Bras. Wellington continued to chat another 20 minutes. Then he asked the Duke of Richmond whether he had a good map. In Richmond's library, poring over it, Wellington is reported to have said, Napoleon has humbugged me by God. He has gained 24 hours march on me. I have ordered the army to concentrate at Quatre Bras, but we shall not stop him there. And if so, I must fight him there. There was the site Wellington had chosen as his battlefield before, near the village of Waterloo. The ball had started off full of gaiety, but then the atmosphere changed. One of the revellers was Lady Georgiana Lennox. She later recalled that when Wellington arrived, I was dancing, but at once went up to him to ask about the rumours. He said very gravely, Yes, they are true, we are off tomorrow. This terrible news was circulated directly, and while some of the officers hurried away, others remained at the ball and actually had not time to change their clothes, but fought in evening costume. Many of these dashing young men would be dead within three days. Another guest, Catherine Arden, wrote that On our arrival at the ball, we were told that the troops had orders to march at three in the morning and that every officer must join his regiment by that time as the French were advancing. Those who had brothers and sons to be engaged openly gave way to their grief as the last parting of many took place at this most terrible ball. Georgiana Lennox also tells us, The Duke of Brunswick, as he took leave of me in the anteroom adjoining the ballroom, made me a civil speech as to the Brunswickers being sure to distinguish themselves. I remember being quite provoked with poor Lord Hay, a dashing, merry youth, full of military ardour, whom I knew very well for his delight at the idea of going into action and of all the honours he was to gain. And the first news we had on the 16th 
was that he and the Duke of Brunswick were killed. As Wellington told Richmond, he first led his forces to Quatre Bras, where, on the 16th of June, the day after the ball, he fought a detachment sent by Napoleon under one of his marshals, Michel Ney. Technically, the British won the engagement, but the French prevented them getting to Ligny, where Napoleon's main army was fighting and winning a far bigger battle against the Prussians. The Prussians had learned a trick or two, though, since the defeats of 1806. While they were beaten at Ligny, they withdrew in good order. Perhaps their most serious casualty was poor old Blücher. He was wounded, which was bad enough. Far worse, he lay for several hours trapped under the body of his dead horse. He was protected by an aide-de-camp who threw a greatcoat over him to hide his rank from French horsemen sweeping by. You'll remember that his chief of staff, Neisenau, with a G, who now took command, was deeply suspicious of Wellington and doubted his commitment to seeing the fight through. Nevertheless, as a good and loyal officer, having got the Prussian army back under control, he obeyed Blücher's order and marched it to the town of Wavre, close enough to help Wellington if necessary, rather than to Liège, further east and away from the French and from Wellington, which would have been his preferred option. Now Napoleon made the same error he'd made years before at the Battle of Marengo. He sent a large detachment, 33,000 men, under Marshal Emmanuel de Grouchy, in pursuit of the Prussians. He then marched the remaining, reduced part of his army, to meet Wellington. By then, Wellington had pulled his forces back from Quatre Bras and, again as he'd told Richmond, taken up position on his preferred field of battle, at Waterloo. There, on Sunday the 18th of June 1815, a French and a British army, commanded by two of Europe's finest generals, met and fought the only battle where they came up against each other. Strangely, it's not clear when the battle started. Wellington reported that a furious French attack had begun at 10 o'clock, but other reports suggest that it only started at 11.30. Waterloo came close to being a French victory. Wellington's army fought hard. A massed attack by infantry led by General Jean-Baptiste Drouet d'Erlon on Wellington's centre was held off. Then Marshal Ney, mistaking the movement of casualties off the field for a retreat, launched a major cavalry attack against the British lines. That was a disastrous error. The infantry tactic against cavalry was to form square, a square formation each side about 18 metres long and four ranks deep, offering a bristling line of bayonets at the charging horses that simply didn't dare go near them. That's another of those iconic images, the British squares standing firm under cavalry attack. Wellington ordered the artillerymen to take refuge inside the squares when the cavalry charged, ready to dash back to their guns and open fire again when the horsemen pull back to regroup and launch another assault. Squares were vulnerable to artillery or infantry, but cavalry alone they could withstand. Eventually, Ney realised he was getting nowhere. He launched a combined attack with infantry and artillery advancing with the horsemen and began to destroy the squares. That was just before four in the afternoon. 
the remnants of Drouet d'Erlon's infantry reformed and joined in. And that's when things turned hard for Wellington. The centre of the British line was the farmhouse of La Haye Sainte. It had been defended all day with great guts by men of the King's German Legion, but they were now running out of ammunition. They couldn't resist the huge attack now focused on the farmhouse, and the French captured it. Wellington's centre was exposed. His entire line was in danger of collapsing. He desperately needed the Prussians to arrive. As he would later tell the story himself, the time they occupied in approaching seemed interminable. Both they and my watch seemed to have stuck fast. But Blücher had promised Wellington he could count on him. Neisenau had terrible misgivings about that promise, but Blücher was intent on keeping it. He had been nicknamed Marshal Forwards, and not for nothing. The story, attested to by many of his soldiers, is that he shouted, Forwards! I hear you say it's impossible, but it has to be done. I have given my promise to Wellington, and you surely don't want me to break it? Push yourselves, my children, and we'll have victory. It was only 14 kilometres, or nine miles, from Vavre to Waterloo. But that's a big distance for an army that has to keep some kind of formation as opposed to individual walkers. What's more, there'd been heavy rain, so streams were in spate while the paths were muddy, making it particularly difficult for cavalrymen riding horses down slippery slopes. But Blücher, despite his injuries, personally led two corps of his army to aid Wellington at Waterloo. The first units reached the battlefield at around 4.30 that afternoon, in the nick of time, just after the fall of La Sainte. Meanwhile, Grouchy met Blücher's third corps at Vavre and defeated it in an engagement remote from and irrelevant to the main battle. Remember General Desay at Marengo, coming back just in time to save Napoleon from a defeat he'd made inevitable by sending him away in the first place? Unlike Desay, Grouchy never made it back. The arrival of the Prussians was the turning point. At the start of the battle, Napoleon had enjoyed a small superiority in numbers. With Blücher's arrival, the Allies outnumbered him by 40%. Napoleon had to divert men to repel the Prussian attack on his right, which meant the French could never fully exploit their advantage at La Sainte. By that evening, the battle was over, and so was Napoleon's reign, this time for good. That gave rise to the expression still used today, to meet one's Waterloo, meaning to encounter a failure so conclusive that there's no recovering from it. To listen to the way the story is told in British schools, this was a huge triumph for British arms. Despite a reputation for restraint, Brits do like to engage in self-congratulation to reinforce their sense of superiority over lesser nations. However, if you look a little more closely at what happened at Waterloo, you find it's not quite the British triumph it's claimed to be. At the start of the battle, Wellington commanded 68,000 men. However, only 25,000 of them were actually British, and even that's counting the Irish as British. 20,000 came from Hanover, Brunswick and Nassau in Germany. What's more, when Hanover fell to the French, many soldiers took refuge in Britain where they formed the King's German Legion, the men who defended La Sainte so valiantly, 
and there were 6,000 of them at Waterloo. Finally, there were 17,000 Dutch-Belgians, forces of the newly set-up United Kingdom of the Netherlands covering present-day Holland and Belgium, which the Congress of Vienna had just created. This meant that Wellington's victory owed more to German arms than British. Even within Wellington's army, there were slightly more German than British soldiers. Add in the 50,000 in Blücher's command, and you can't avoid the conclusion that far more German fighting men than Brits secured the victory at Waterloo. But generals matter. A lot. You'll remember how Andrew Jackson used his superior generalship to inflict a massive defeat on Wellington's brother-in-law, Edward Packenham, at New Orleans. Wellington's generalship at Waterloo was as essential as Jackson's in Louisiana, as was Blucher's. Had Wellington not managed to keep the fight going until after 4.30, Blucher would have had no one to rescue. In my view, shared honours is a much better assessment of the battle than either British or German triumphalism. Indeed, Wellington's own remarks suggest that triumphalism of any kind is out of order. He would later say, It has been a damn serious business. Bluch and I have lost 30,000 men. It has been a damn nice thing. The nearest run thing you ever saw in your life. The casualties were indeed terrible. Our loss, he said, is immense, particularly in that best of all instruments, British infantry. Let's at least be grateful he no longer referred to them as the scum of the earth. Nothing except a battle lost, he would subsequently claim, can be half so melancholy as a battle won. I hope to God, he fervently prayed, that I have fought my last battle. And he had. The next challenges that had to be addressed were those of the peace, and they turned out to be challenging indeed. We'll start to discover that next week. Thanks for listening, and don't forget, who the hell is Norfolk? the companion podcast to this one. Episode 3 is out. Have fun listening to it. <laughs> <laughs>